The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Viagra for Men, when that got approved, it was deemed to meet such an important unmet medical need that it was rushed to approval in six months. Guess how long it took me to get the drug that affects women's most common sexual dysfunction approved? Six years. This week on the show, I am talking with Cindy Eckert. Cindy is an entrepreneur and an advocate for female health and wellness, and she fought, and when I say fought, I mean really fought, to bring to market the first ever drug for female sexual enhancement, Addy, which is considered the female Viagra. Cindy bought and sold two pharmaceutical companies for more than $1.5 billion, and she did it all by taking risks and always leading with empathy. Along the way, she founded the Pink Ceiling, or Pinkubator, which invests in health products founded by women or for women. I am thrilled to have the opportunity to share Cindy's story, how she took on the FDA, and how she advocates for female entrepreneurship. Furthermore, she does it all by leaning into her femininity all the way down to her pink underwear. Please welcome the unstoppable Cindy Eckert to the Half Naked Podcast. Cindy, thank you so much for coming on Half Naked. As I was telling you earlier, I am so in awe of you. You are such a powerhouse. I would love to start this interview by asking you what I ask everybody when they come on the show. Could you please tell me what kind of underwear you're wearing right now? Well, you know that the panties have to match the personality. So they are pink as predicted. Of course, they are pink and they are lacy like they are almost every day. So those are the panties that I have on now. A thong, always a thong. Should I tell bra too? Yes, please. Bra is, of course, Sarah Blakely because who doesn't love Sarah for Spanx? And mm-hmm. she makes those comfortable bras too. So I can thank Sarah for so many moments in my life around underwear and undergarments. So that's what I, I'm- I was hoping you were telling me that you were going to wear pink. I'm not surprised, but I'm also not surprised about how much you like Sarah. I think you two are very similar in a lot of ways, especially like how you have operated and run your business and how you connect with people. And I think that's what I want to start talking with you about. You're such a powerhouse. You've created such an empire. You're a force to be reckoned with and you lead in so much into your feminine energy while you're doing it. I've heard you say that you're fueled with empathy as a business owner and how much empathy informs data differently. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to start talking to you about that. Oh, thank you so much. Well, first of all, it is the ultimate compliment to be put in the same book with Sarah, right? Or in the same category. And I do love her because she's self-made and self-deprecating. And, you know, I think it's just that I completely reject the notion that femininity is a weakness when it comes to business. I see it absolutely as a strength. Mm-hmm. And I was in every room as I went through my professional career being told, pull your hair back, take the makeup off. They're not taking you seriously. Do this, do that. Be one of the guys. Yeah. It's really right. Isn't that really what we're being told? And my thought was absolutely not because as soon as I take away some of who I authentically am, and I'm kind of a girly girl. I like pink. Mm-hmm. I've liked it my whole life. I'm not going to actually show up in the room the same way. And I think that piece of you're talking a little bit about my TED talk, the DNA of a rule breaker, and what is it that uniquely, I think, causes women to break the rules, to disrupt, to challenge, and it's empathy. 
And in a world in which we manage decisions and businesses and outcomes by spreadsheet, like we look at it like just like this, are you kidding? The, the superpower is overlaying that with empathy. Putting yourself in someone else's shoes is going to actually make you consider the challenge quite differently. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate that compliment. I do think femininity is power at the board table. And I think it's only if we show up truly as who we are and then the things that we like. Not all women like pink. I totally understand that. Yeah. I happen to. But I'll tell you why I started wearing it is people would come up to me and say, oh, pink. Yeah. <laughs> when they <laughs> on the shoulder, like, oh, that's cute. And I thought, you know, this is going to flip it on its yeah. head to be like, okay, go ahead and underestimate me. This is going to be the transition from underestimated to unapologetic. I have the best undergarment story for you. Oh, please tell I've, me. This was designed for your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we know this. So when I was going through this with the FDA, with the struggle, there was a brilliant attorney that worked with me. Her name is Josephine Torrenti. And Josephine would look at me and she knew the stakes were high, right? The, the emotions were high, the stakes were high. And when we would go, we had this one big meeting that I talked about where they assembled all the experts. And she looked at me the night before and she was like, please, can you just wear black? <laughs> blend. Like, can you just come to this and wear black? And I was like, okay. And you know, Josephine is in like, she wears beautiful pants, kick-ass shoes. And, um, I show up the next day and I am in bright, shocking pink. She takes one look at me and is like, okay. And then she leans in and she's like, but my panties are pink. (laughs) Oh, I love that. She's like, I'm representing you. So great. And to this day, she will send me notes. Like we are dear friends and she'll text me and she'll be like, I'm at the FDA today. And I want you to know my panties are pink. (laughs) Yes. And it's true though. It is like, how do I feel about myself and and how I, you know, this moxie, if you will, and how Mm. we show up in this world and like, you may like lacy panties. You may not, whatever it is though, that makes you feel that power, that personal power is so important that we discuss and that we give permission and validate that that's very real for all of us. You so much use your power to empower other women. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for everything that you're doing. I'm reminded of the story that you told at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, which is the biggest healthcare conference in, in the world, in front of I'm assuming a lot of men Yes, and you're standing there to talk about Addie. Let's talk about that because I feel like so much of that is you showing up authentically as you are and then schooling everybody in the process. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, that was really like being invited to the show. That's the biggest healthcare conference. I'm running this like small private company. This is like a moment where I can get a lot of attention and a lot of funding. And I get up to present. I'm dressed in hot pink. I'm there to talk about the female Viagra as it was dubbed. And literally I start talking and the whole room starts to giggle. It's like it went from the front of the room all the way to the back. And it was just a sea of blue and gray suits staring at me laughing. 
Because you were talking about women's that, sexual health. Oh my gosh. That, and that and I also, you know, I don't fit their mold. Like, why mm-hmm. am I there? There are so few women, even who present at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, you would not believe. Every year, actually, I take a picture of myself in the lobby because you can get to the second floor and take a picture and it's just pink. pink. I was going to say like a Where's Waldo sort of <laughs> thing. Right. It's just like, oh, here we are again, just <gasps> woman in the room. So I got up, I'm ready to present. This is, I get eight minutes on the clock. This is like, go, right? Here's your moment. And they start to laugh. And I start to think, what? The chairman of my board is literally sitting in the first row staring at me. Like, what are you going to do? And I'm looking at my little timer counting down. So I fast forwarded as fast as I could to brain scan imaging that shows the difference for women who have this condition. By the way, it's a medical condition. Mm -hmm. And I just pointed I went silent, like silent long enough for all of them to be equally uncomfortable. And as soon as the room quieted, I said, are you looking at what I'm looking at? Because I'm just here to talk about the biology of sex for women. Go. And that room shut down in terms of laughter, giggling. And all of a sudden we were having a serious conversation, but it was a great lesson for me in terms of how I was going to have to walk into rooms full of men and talk about this. Yeah. And, and keep your composure and drive it home. That, that story gives me chills. I'd love to talk about your journey to this place where you represent women so well, and you're really at the front of improving women's sexual health or the first person to really even talk about it. How did this happen? So I like to say Irish Catholic, which makes my mom really mad. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm Italian. I'm Italian Catholic. There so. you go. I grew up in I, Italian. You were either, <laughs> you're either Italian or you were Irish. Yeah. Like, probably Catholic. But really, the way I got to it is I've had a long career in healthcare, in pharma. And I was in big environments thinking, no, I don't love the way this works. Going to small environments, chasing innovation until I finally thought, you know what? Why am I doing this for other people? I should be doing this for myself. Mm -hmm. So I started my first company. And how old were you when you did that? Oh, I was in my early thirties when I first started. Pharmaceuticals. And you're not a scientist. You're a business business person. Yeah. Always. I'm a geek about the science. I love it, but I've been surrounded by these awesome scientific teams. And I think that's been a bit of the magic, like my mindset, their scientific prowess. But I'm basically decided to start my own business. And I started with one of the male sexual health drugs. Mm -hmm. So I built a company with a product for men that was used for their satisfaction. And I look around and I think "Hmm, there's 26 different FDA approved drugs for some form of male sexual dysfunction and not one for women. Can you imagine No, that we all know, we all know that that math doesn't add up. In fact, by all of the data, more women than men actually suffer from issues in the bedroom. And there was data, right? Oh, for sure. So here I am, I'm at this conference. So there's a sexual medicine society meeting. I like to say I'm a card carrying member. You've heard me say (laughs) popular cocktail parties, Um, but there's a with like the biggest researchers in the world. And basically the science had emerged really the desire discovery for women. So we understood from these brain scan imaging, exactly what I showed at that JP Morgan conference, that for women who once were happy with their desire for sex, it's like the switch went out and it's causing them a ton of bother and frustration and 
body image issues and relationship issues. And of course, women take it personally, right? They take it on themselves. It's their they think fault. It's them. It's their yeah. fault. This is just me. And so there are millions of women affected by this, which by the way, we've known about since the seventies, but we never fixed the, for a solution. Wow. It's cool. Once we saw it on brain scan imaging, everybody had to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Because I put a woman with this condition in a MRI, I put a woman with like the normal ebb and flow of desire, expose her to some kind of erotica, their brains light up totally differently. Isn't it interesting that it's so neurological for women yes. and for men, it's, you know, Viagra, specifically targets under like below the waist. It is. It's sort of, you know, blood flow versus brain flow. Wow. Party starts for us in the brain. And, you know, for, for millions of us at some point that will go off kilter, those neurochemicals that make us respond to sexual cues. So I'm at this meeting, this was in 2010. Wow. And I'm so excited. Finally, like there's the science for women And this German company had innovated it. They come to this meeting and they tell all the researchers we're walking away. And if you had taken like the, you know, pulse of the room, it's like all the air left the room. Finally, we were on the cusp of breaking through for women and everybody was running the other direction. Why? Was it offensive? Was it, what was the issue for? Social narrative. I am going to tell you the science here is spectacular. In any other category, we find something like this. Everyone runs in. Everyone goes, oh my gosh, this is new understanding. Now we have this ability to innovate. You know what? It's women in sex and everybody's like, okay, bye-bye. Like we're, we're not taking this on. And so what was so evident to me is it wasn't on the basis of science. It was on the basis of a societal narrative and no one having the courage to challenge that. And as soon as I was in this room, I thought, I'm going to sell off my company and men and take this on. Wow. And my board was like, you're going to do what? Because <laughs> our business is successful. They're like, no, uh-uh. I'm like, yes, this is the mission. This is what I'm supposed to do. Were you always like this? Like just a risk taker? doing the right thing as a child? Because to take something like this on, I mean, this is, this is huge. It's so funny you asked me that question because I have to tell you, it's been a couple of years since all of us have been stuck at home, but I was in Vegas with some girlfriends and we were walking along and one of them wanted to hit one of the tables and she's like, come on. And I'm like, oh, I don't really gamble. And she looked at me and she's like, like, hell you don't. <laughs> but <laughs> so you bet I, on yourself, right? I do. That's the yeah. comment. So yeah, I think even from, you know, I had a weird childhood in the sense that I moved every year from the fourth grade through my senior year of high school. And so I was the perpetual new kid in a new circumstance. Little did I know that it was conditioning me to basically take risks and to challenge the things that don't make sense and be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And trust yourself in a new environment all the time. Yeah. What a brilliant exercise. Was that done by design for your parents or were you running from the law or something? (laughs) That would be such a better story. My dad is is a complete risk taker. So I definitely have that in my DNA. He's an adventurer. I moved the very first time. So I'm originally from upstate New York, Rochester, New York. My dad comes home. I'm in the fourth grade. And he says, do you want to go to Fiji? And I said, what's Fiji? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. I had to go, like look on the globe. And he was, it's the other side of the world. And I'm like, that sounds fun. And he goes, good. Cause we're moving there. Um, so he did partially through his work, his state department, he moved us 
but yeah, I think by design, my parents were very much about independent thinking. Mm. You got to make your own way. You're accountable. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And they're still around. They are. My dad just oh. had his 80th birthday. Oh, God bless. I'm so interested all the time in specifically women, their relationship with their fathers. Yeah. Right. And I feel like it's such an important relationship and it sounds like you have a really great dad. He was great. I mean, I think my dad was very much, you can do and be anything. And it's sort of your responsibility to form your own opinions on things. I have two big brothers and we always compare notes that whenever we would ask our parents for help with homework, they would say the same four words. So we would be like, Hey, you know, dad, what do you think about this essay I'm doing? And instead of ever giving us the leg up, he would always respond. What do you think? I love that. And I think that adults don't ask children yeah. enough. I was thinking about that recently, like to always ask my, my boyfriend has children and I'm always like, I always want to ask them, you know, yeah. be independent thinkers and formulate your own opinion on things and like weigh the options, you know, yeah. that's, that's really valuable. So you sold off the company and then is that when you formed Sprout? So, so I sold off Slate was my first company and I really did. I sprouted out of it and Sprout is what took on the FDA and the public conversation on women's sexual pleasure. And uh, it was quite a ride. So that was Sprout. Wow. And tell me a bit about taking on the FDA. I was blown away by the obstacles that you faced in order to get this drug in the hands of deserving and entitled women and how difficult at every single turn, there was some sort of obstacle that you really had to push against. Yeah. You know, it really is sort of the dirty little, little secret in medicine is it is a tale of two sexes. I hope that we're doing some good work, but really we have to be very careful. The whole system isn't designed to pass value judgments on women's behalf. As witnessed by, can you imagine there are 26 different drugs for men? That means yeah. 26 times we looked at risks and benefits. All drugs have risks and benefits. We looked at that and we said, okay. And we turned the decision over to a man and his healthcare provider, but not once were we able to do that for women until we broke through that didn't make any sense to me. I'll tell you that I went into that really quite naively. I had run a company for men. Mm -hmm. I understood the space. I understood the clinical trials. Right. I had a roadmap of exactly what I had to do. And when I did all of that work and I got turned down, it was like out of left field. I did not see that coming. And so again, what was so clear to me is that who should be at the center of this conversation, if not the women who are dealing with it? Because it's men making these decisions. Yes. So it's clear as day, by the way. It must be mind-bending. So frustrating. I mean, can I give you guys just stats? So let's just do a little stroll. We've all probably heard of Viagra. Mm -hmm. So Viagra for men, when that got approved, it was deemed to meet such an important unmet medical need that it was rushed to approval in six months. Oh my God. Guess how long it took me to get the drug that affects women's most common sexual dysfunction approved? Six years. Wow. Six years, two rejections, and three times as many patients studied. Yeah, why were they turning it down? You know, I think that it was, I'm gonna be kind and say unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. I think maybe for some it was overt, for many it was unconscious. And I think that we just have a double standard around women's satisfaction. What do I mean? It means women can have sex whether or not they want it. So we've got Viagra, which is 
fixing hydraulic lift, right? A mechanical issue um, to have sex. And then we have this other on, on women's side where we are content to tell women like, hey, just take a bubble bath <sighs> or read 50 shades of gray. And <laughs> so dismissive. Yeah. Dismissive. So here is what's crazy. Something goes wrong for a man. We go biology. Let's fix mm -hmm. it. Something goes wrong for women. We go, oh, psychology. Let's just have her calm down. The truth is men and women alike bring psychology and biology into the bedroom. And what ignited mm -hmm. me is that we understood there was a biological basis for some of the women challenged by this and yet we were doing nothing to address it. Look, to the FDA's credit, they did the thing that they are in fact mandated to do, that our taxpayer dollars pay for. They put the people in the dialogue who we were addressing the issue for. And once that happened, once they opened up their doors and women came and they, mm -hmm. I mean, how brave are these women? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that final hurdle where you were yeah. able to get it approved after selling the drug, getting the drug back. I mean, I know there was a big tug of war there also, yeah. and you finally got the drug back yeah. and the FDA denied it. How did you get it finally approved? You know what? I actually forced them to have these public conversations with mm. women. And once I think, again, this empathy notion, right? Once we heard it from them, they were losing marriages. They'd lost their sense of self. Mm. They were deeply, deeply struggling with this. And again, how brave are they that they actually went to a federal agency and talked about their most personal problems, but right. they did it to change it for all of us. Once that happened, we really looked at the science. You know, science had given us the answer from the outset. We just weren't listening until we actually recognized that it was valid that women were struggling with this and there was something we could do to address it. And I think that was the incredible win. So once the FDA assembled this huge like expert panel to go through all the data, to speak to all the women, they voted overwhelmingly to approve it. Finally, it's interesting throughout history, how much women needed to go to the front lines and yeah. fight, whether it's for equal pay or work and burn their bras. It's like, it's just always like this rally cry that women really do really, they need to connect with each other, depend on each other and represent each other essentially. And I just, at every chance that happens, it, I mean, I'm grateful for women for standing up and for being honest and vulnerable and, and sharing their truth. But historically, that's really been the only way that we could affect change. Only we change it, right? By advocating for ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. And that was really my like front row lesson in that whole experience is that women have to advocate for one another. And I will say, I, I like to call fighting the government, the road less traveled. <laughs> <I'm>, I bet. <laughs> but when you do that, I think when you take that road less traveled, the, the gift of that is the people who come and walk alongside of you. Mm -hmm. we would have never gotten to meet, right? Yeah. If, if this hadn't happened. And like, I imagine the possibility of things, you know, we can do together as well. So it is about locking arms one another and uh, really changing the things we want to see change. It is. I had never heard about Addie, female Viagra. And I was listening to another podcast and I had heard about you and I was just in awe of everything that you've built and created and done it all by yourself. But also just this notion of, I can't believe I've never heard of it. I want to use every every opportunity that I can to talk about you and what you do and share the work that you've built. 
and improving hopefully the lives of many other women. But I think it's like our responsibility to, to do that. That it's still like every time I go to a cocktail party and we end up with the, what do you do? What do you do? And I say it and everyone's like, that's a thing. I've never heard of it. It's like a dagger to my heart. Yeah. It's also emblematic of you better believe we all knew at the minute Viagra hit the scene immediately. It was, yeah, it was right. I mean, I'm sure SNL, I mean, it was just absolutely. And we are sort of this little kept secret. And yet the prevalence for women, the condition is called HSDD. So ED for men, right? HSDD for women. The prevalence is the Mm. same. Like, can you imagine, like, think about, and I, I always say this to folks, if for the last 20 years, you haven't turned on your TV or your radio and not been told that sexual satisfaction is important. It can make a big difference in your life. But none of us have really like processed that the, you know, the sub kind of message there is if you're a man. Right, right. And it, it was wild to me to think about how many other facets of our life that we just don't think about that for women because we've been conditioned not to, yeah. you know, yeah. reproductive health. It's the end for women's sexual health. We, yeah. we have, we have babies and that's really, that's it. We don't really place importance on yeah. anything else with pleasure. pleasure. Right. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? You can't have a sexual revolution and not go all the way through pleasure. And my sort of radical thought is part of the reason we get stuck in reproduction and we advance and we go backward and we advance is that we've never, we women have never owned the dialogue all the way through pleasure. And I think once right. we do that, we break all of those chains and we're having an honest and like full discussion. If we go into the bedroom, I, you know, I think very few times in our life explicitly to, um, to reproduce, but I hope we <laughs> always go in to have pleasure yeah. I hope that's true for everybody listening. And so, you know, that's an important piece of it. Yeah. I, I, and I love just the notion of, I don't want to say this, but it, it's considered taboo, right? Women's sexual health is considered is. taboo. And I heard you say once that taboos are integral to the human experience yeah. all the time. And we just, we're just not comfortable talking about it. Yes. And you are, has there been any stigma against you? I just want to talk about your experience, just yeah. representing everything that you do. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, there have been a ton of cheap shots. There were death threats sent to my home when I was from going- who? From religious groups? From you no. Know, what's funny is it's funny. Oh, like it's, it's not funny. So <laughs> I know now you have to have a sense of humor about it, right? <laughs> you do. You have a great sense of humor. It wasn't always the most obvious groups. Like in fact, religious groups were very clear that sex is positive for marriage and in relationships. And it was really like a very small but vocal group that I think actually were acting like they were pro kind of feminist when in fact what they were doing is that saying that they knew better than women. Like my version of life, I guess, for all of us is I want everybody to have the best life experience. I would never impose my views on you having the option for something. I want you to have an option. Like I can take it or not take it, but I certainly believe that everybody deserves to have all options. And when it comes to medicine, when we understand things are effective, we should have them. But it's been interesting. Like the way that people wrote about me, I would tell you was distinctly different than if there had been a male CEO at the helm of this, or it had been big corporate, big pharma. Um, This was like the tiny little company challenging convention. And therefore we got a lot of grief. I used to tell people who bet on me, thankfully I had wonderful investors who went the distance with me through this crazy Mm. roller coaster ride 
I would say, here's the good news. It's women and sex. So almost everybody will write about it. Here's the bad news. 80% of, they, of what they write will be bullshit and clickbait. Mm, yeah. And, and it's like perpetuating the myths and misinformation. My feeling is I talk about sex in the way that I would want somebody else to talk to me about it. Um, there's no version of perfect sex. No one has like this perfect view. We all have individual, but we should all, all have sex on our own terms mm -hmm. and at the way that we want it. And we should have access to options if it's not there. Yeah. Speaking of access, where could we get Addy now? And yeah. how long has it been officially on the market? So we really are in launch mode, like wow. the pandemic in the sense that I'm hoping people who are listening will start to hear it on podcasts and in radio ads. So that's really coming on even just this year. I cannot believe that it's just this year. I'm so excited. It's, first of all, I'm so excited for you, but it's, it's 2021 oh, and a half. Right. I mean, this has been, it was 2010 when yeah. you were able to acquire it back, Absolutely. right? 20, 2010 when I started, 2015 oh. when it got approved, then it got bought, I got it back. And now it's finally, finally out there. So I hope people will hear about it, but I will say, you know, Addy, you can get it on Addy.com. It's A-D-D-Y-I.com. It does require a prescription. So mm. you can have a conversation with a healthcare professional in your state, 19 bucks. To your point that it's still stigmatized, I want to change that. But I realize women still are embarrassed to bring this up with their healthcare provider often. So that they do have an opportunity to do it just like we're doing it from the comfort of your couch on the phone, it can ship to your doorstep. So you're not standing in, you know, CVS or Walgreens and they're calling your name. Yeah. You can do it that way as well. You have all those options, but I wanted to create an option that just made sure that no one's ever too embarrassed or ashamed to bring it up because you deserve to bring it up. I want to talk about the resistance that you faced a bit, not just from the government and yeah. from other pharmaceutical companies, but were there any pushback, especially with these death threats that you're telling me about where, or the reporters, journalists from women. Yes. Yes. And that surprised me maybe most of all. And I think that under that resistance is a viewpoint that there's some version of like our perfect selves. You know, I, I think some, some folks would think any discussion around sexuality is objectification of women. That's not what this is. This is sex again at your own normal. Something changed. It's just like depression, right? Mm -hmm. If we were to go and treat someone who is depressed, we wouldn't be treating them to make them euphoric. That's not what you do. You restore mm -hmm. them back to where they were, where there was a stability to their mood. Same thing with desire. We're not thinking that we're giving a pill that makes women nymphomaniacs, right? Yeah, it right. restores them to a normal where they were like receptive to cues from their partner, or they were, you know, fantasizing themselves or thinking about sex or initiating it. So it's just when I got that resistance, it was very interesting to me that I think a lot of that is very personal. My parents always say to me, like, could you have not invented something in diabetes? <laughs> That's so funny. They're like, Mom, dad, I made over a billion dollars helping. <laughs> but if you're not diabetic, you don't have point. This is sex. And like when that happened, when I got death threats, my I came home and my dad was, you know, on a ladder putting cameras everywhere on my house because he recognized that this really does 
press a button, if you will, in a lot of us around a belief system in terms of, does it matter? Do we consider that women's satisfaction is uh, just as important? So I'm happy to have that conversation with anyone. And by the way, I will say along the way, I spoke with my haters as much as my supporters. And I did that because I just wanted to have an evidence-based conversation. There are facts, there is data, this Mm -hmm. is science, Mm -hmm. and I'm willing to have that discussion with, with real proof points, or you can just go over here and emotionally kind of state things that are, in my opinion, anti kind of feminist perspective. Right. It's just like that boardroom story that you were telling about, you know, how people have this emotional reaction to something that's purely scientific because we just can't get off of the our own notion that women and sex are two things that we shouldn't be talking about together it's just and so much of what I wanted to do with this podcast was talk about taboo subjects like our undergarments and talk about how they reflect our underselves or how we feel about ourselves or our body or our relationship to our partner and I just found that we don't talk about these things ever, especially with sexuality. I would love to talk about how you were literally using all of your power to empower other women, especially women in business. And I'd love to talk about the pinky baiter. Yes, the pinky baiter. After I I sold Sprout and before I got Addy back, when I thought that this company would march it across the globe and make it affordable, accessible for women, and then they shelved it, I started the pinky baiter because Really, exactly as I said, that lesson I've had, women advocating for each other. Mm-hmm. I thought my very best work going forward is going to be to reach my hand back and get women to outcomes like mine faster than I got there myself. How do I become their champion? And how do I create this multiplier effect of ownership and outcomes so women are supporting other women? So that's what the Pinky Bear is all about. And I find the most incredible women taking big swings. Mm-hmm. So we just launched, not even a month ago, the world's first flushable pregnancy test. How cool was that? It is amazing for so many reasons. I want you to tell me, I mean, I have my own personal reasons to why I think that's amazing. And, and it's not just for an environmental reason, but I cannot believe when, when, when I had heard about that, I was like, I couldn't believe that we have, you know, four different parts of plastic yeah. in this plastic box. It's so expensive also. Yeah. For sure. Can you imagine like we've had this, it hasn't been innovated since like our mother's pregnancy. That's what I mean. We, 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 we're not changing things. Tampons, everything, they're not evolving. Right. I think there's a renaissance happening like right now at the hands of women solving these mm. really product design solutions. I love it. It all falls under this term of femtech. So one of the things I'm most proud of is when we broke through in 2015, no such word existed. It was coined in 2016, a $50 billion category by 2025. That gives people belief, right? I thought we gave them a billion reasons to believe that women's health should be taken seriously, that we should invest in it. And now there's this incredible, and we love doing our part through, you know, the incubator in these companies. And Leah, as an example, this test, to your point, like not only does your pregnancy test not have to be 80% plastic, yeah. so there is it equally effective, no plastic, but by the way, also discreet if you want yeah. it. 
And that matters. That's the empathy that I, I'm really like, I could cry. I'm in awe of just, we've just been talking more recently about infertility issues and women that, you know, have been really suffering and dealing with that or miscarriage, everything. And just the notion of this, this thing sitting in the garbage, it's quite large, by the way, it's bigger than my phone. I know it's so true. (laughs) By the way, fun fact for everybody, women never buy a pregnancy test alone at a pharmacy. They buy it tip most typically with a magazine. Do you know why? Cause we wrap it up so nobody can see it. Like there's so many layers of it's very what true. we've been told, what are we ashamed of? Um, and it's just, you know, I love these founders fertility. There's a woman named Afton Veshery who runs modern fertility. So think about that. Even at my, I'm in my late forties, you know, you, you're trying to get pregnant. You go to the OBGYN when you're like, okay, I've been trying. It's not working. You're already upset. They refer you out. You get this really expensive fertility workup. Well, guess what? She created a kit that gives you a complete picture of your fertility. You can get it when you're 22 years old, if you want and decide like, do I want to freeze my eggs? Do I need to think about this? And it's just a kit that you can buy for, I'm going to get it wrong. It's 129 or 159. I mean, and she, you can buy it through them or you can buy it at Walmart. I love women putting power yes. in their hands around their health journey. Yes. When we talk about all these things, it makes me realize how powerless we've been. Yes. We weren't even conscious of how mm-hmm. much I think we were being left out of the medical conversation and how little funding goes. Yeah. This will blow your mind 4%. of research dollars go to women's health. And we're half the population. 4%. It will change. It'll change because women are taking the reins and we're fixing it for other women. And it's interestingly becoming very kind of consumer driven demand. So as opposed to the medical establishment, it's going to have to keep up with us uh, because women are innovating and, uh, and we're taking that power. I see that so much in the lingerie industry also, where there are so many more female-owned, independent, smaller lingerie companies. And as you said earlier, innovation comes with the mom and pops, with the smaller companies, just like Sprout and so on. And they are making real change for women in terms of, you know, bras for mastectomies, nursing bras, making things sexy and pink and fun and feminine and not just so clinical. Uh, There's so much change going on in comfort. I mean, and and then you look at Sarah, what she did with Spanx and it's her whole, her whole drive for quite literally supporting women. And I think that's amazing. Could you tell me what else is going on with the pink, the pinky bear? Hope you guys will follow us, follow all the things we're working on. We look for game-changing first, buyer for women, and really things that are going to change, I think, often open new categories or change social conversations. So be be it fertility, the pregnancy test, uh, we have a product actually for Alzheimer's um, that's the first ever personalized treatment plan. By the way, two-thirds of all diagnoses of Alzheimer's are women. women. And that's why we care so much about that category as well. I have a woman who, this won't be for everybody, but for all women who ever um, deliver a baby or even have pain management through a spinal tap or lumbar puncture, she's reinvented it. And it's so cool that she has created you know, a, a totally new device that'll make that easy and, and comfortable for patients. So we just look for these incredible innovations and really, quite frankly, incredible women mm-hmm. who are making change in this world. 
and bet on them because I think if I could get them into the billion dollar club, mm-hmm. what I know is they will get so many more women there and so many more women there and so many more. And it's all about the multiplier effect. Yeah. The leapfrog. I, I think it's spreading knowledge, spreading wealth yes. and just spreading accessibility. That's really the most important part of all of this. Is the pregnancy test available yet? It is. You can just find them on social at meet Leah and it's LIA. Leah diagnostics is the pregnancy test. That's fantastic. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners about the nail polish. Has that been developed yet? Yes, it has been developed. So it's not a polish, but it's a decal that you can put on the back of your phone or on a keychain. And basically in 30 seconds, if I dip my finger in a drink and I touch that, it'll tell me if there's a date rape drug in that drink. Wow. Which again, like, you know, I have a, I have a niece still on a college campus. One has graduated. When I first found this technology, I thought I can't get this to market fast enough. Yeah. We just deserve all of these tools. Yeah. I mean, it's just so popular for women to, whether you're in college or at a party, back when we used to go to parties, that you just kind of accept it. Look at, I mean, a promising young woman just won the Academy Award because of this very, very common narrative. And that is an issue. Can we find a way to safely protect us? Yeah. Growing up, they just give you a thing of mace and like send you on your merry way. So true. I know. Isn't that true? Yeah. It's like, and not give us the, like the proper tools or just the education or, you know, the understanding to protect ourselves. Our thread is, does it put power in the hands of women? And if it, even it does, we're interested and uh, we're really looking for those kind of breakthroughs. Thank you for everything that you do. Before I let you go, I'd really like to play a very quick game. Oh, let's do it. It's time for our closing segment. Let's keep it brief. Okay, so I'm going to name a garment. And I want you to tell me how you could imagine that garment evolving in the future. Okay. Or some ideas or some technological or emotional advancement. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to start with the bra. Not my idea. It's really made out of like pantyhose material so that you can like wrap it all different ways. So you can make it strapless or you can, and it doesn't have this feeling like I'm wearing some kind of holster stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold it up. It just, it's got such a different feel to it. It's a, it's an awesome, it's called nudie. And I'm not sure if they've gotten it to market yet, but it really does feel like almost second skin. That's so great. Do you deal with garments at all? I'm sure you get pitched everything under the sun. We tend to stick to like right. wellness, mm-hmm. but we uh, we do sometimes get them and we have so much fun looking at them. So I connected them to some other investors that were even better in that space. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's very interesting. Okay. And let's do one more, the corset. Oh, do we have to change it though? Because I think it's sort of incredible and it's like, I mean, there is something to me that loves the, you know, the female form, like how, how our femininity is such a strength. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, showing that off in a very kind of conventional way is, is sometimes quite, quite beautiful. Yeah. And powerful in itself. I could see you wearing a pink corset over that pink blouse yes, your next, in your next meeting, yeah, preferably with the FDA. Yeah. Maybe that's how I should have been thinking about innovation is how much of this do we show, right? How much are, um, do we like wear on the outside and, and show as part of kind of the feminine form and, and owning our, our beauty as well. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on Half Naked City. I'm listening to every episode, so I hear all these. Oh, you're so sweet. And just thank you for all the work that you're doing and you continue to do and looking the way that you do while doing it. You're so sweet. Before I let you go, though, could you please tell all of my listeners where we could find you, uh, where we could find your products and learn more about everything that you're doing and building? Yes. Oh, thank you so much. So I hope you'll follow me at Cindy Pink CEO. Uh, you can pitch us through the pinkceiling.com or the pinkubator.com. And then all of the products are listed on the site. So these great innovations by other women will connect you to. Thank you again so much, Cindy. To sum up this interview for you today, never underestimate a woman in pink. Cindy is making the world a better place for women, no matter how many obstacles are in her way. Please follow her Instagram, Cindy Pink CEO, to check out all her pink posts and learn about all the innovation developing under her pinkubator. As always, you can follow us on social media at Half Naked Podcast. We share all recommendations from the show and where you can find products we talk about. Until next time, stay cheeky, my friends.